Hey, wanted to give you a little prequel to this podcast. Last Thursday, I spoke at Minnesota Teen Challenge. And after my talk, Jeff Dubay came up to me and we talked for a little bit. Reached out uh, to him to see if he'd be open to being on this podcast. Um, and obviously, he was open to it. Congratulations to Jeff. He is graduating this Friday. Uh, he's been in the program for a year. And it's a, it's a scramble for your life. I, I'll never forget waking up the next morning thinking to myself how screwed I am. Now, it's like, what am I going to do now that I know about this, now that I've tried this? I, I, mean, I, I mean, I was hooked instantly. From Lakely, it's how I got here. The stories behind the youth, high school, college, and professional sports journey, where it leads, and what we learn along the way. I'm Corey Kosky, and on today's show, we have a Minnesota personality that's battled with addiction and is now coming out the other side. There's a saying my mom taught me, don't judge a man until you walk a mile in his shoes. There's also another saying that I've heard, we are all one phone call away from being brought to our knees. On October 15, 2008, Jeff Dubay was arrested for a felony possession of a controlled substance. The local news channels got wind of it and made sure everybody knew about it. Judgment followed. Jeff Dubay was living the sports fan's dream. He worked in the Twins clubhouse when they won the 87 and 91 World Series. He was buddies with Herbeck, Puckett, Gaetti, Gladden. After that, he went on to having one of the top radio sports shows in the Twin Cities. The PA and Dubay show. He was riding the wave. And then it started. He gets divorced. And it is heart-wrenching. It isolates him from his family. He was devastated. Felt his life could not get any worse. Then he made a decision. One night. That led him down the path that he couldn't get off. This is his story. Born and raised in uh, Bemidji, growing up in Bemidji? Well, no. Uh, born in Bemidji. Born uh, in Bemidji. But raised in Hopkins. Okay. Sorry. What, what, uh, <laughs> so wh when did you move to Hopkins? Uh, well, I was born in Bemidji um, because my, my folks were co-eds uh, at Bemidji State. Uh, so, uh, you know, they're, they're originally from Hopkins, so they moved back down here. They, need, they were 19-year-old they were college kids. They needed, they needed family around uh, once I showed up. Okay, so, <laughs> so I, moved to, I moved to Hopkins. So living in Hopkins, tell yep. me a little bit about that. Hopkins is awesome. Um, it's a, it's a blue-collar, blue -collar, tiny little blue-collar town that's sandwiched in between Wyzetta, Edina, and Minnetonka. So it's like, it's like you've got the blue bloods, and then the, in the middle is the blue-collar. Um, and Hopkins is unique because it's, it's, it's like its own sustaining little town. It's, you know, it's got a main street, it's got its own business district. Uh, you know, like in sociology class at the U of M, they taught us that it's not even a suburb. It's its own self-sustaining, you know, economic, you know, system. You know, it's, it's, you know like a suburb needs a, a, an urban area. Like Eden Prairie could not exist without Minneapolis. Hopkins could exist on its own. And it's, 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 a, it's a cool little town. So you grew up, you played some, played some sports there. Yeah, not well. But, what, what sports did you play? Um, uh, baseball. Uh, I played hockey uh, until in fifth grade. Then I switched to basketball, uh, which is probably my, my best sport. But uh, Hop Hopkins is a basketball factory. Uh, it's, you got to be you got to be really good to play basketball at Hopkins, and I wasn't really good. So you're playing competitive basketball. You played a team. I, I did uh, through like my sophomore year in high school. 
but uh, it's a it's a that's a it's a big school and it's a basketball factory and you better you better have some game. Okay, so tell me tell me a little bit about your youth sports. Well, I mean, I, I love playing little league, you know, with with my friends. That was that was those are the best memories. You know, little league baseball is just the, just the best. I mean, we had a great little field in in Hopkins. It was called MB Hagen MB Hagen Field, and you know, to be 10, 11 years old, and you know have somebody announcing your name when you step up to the plate I and mean, we had everything but walk-up music you know i mean we had the we had the announcer we had the concession stand big bleachers that were always full of parents uh, i mean it was little league little league to me was the was the pinnacle i mean i still watch the little league world series it's it's the best so if you if you could have walk-up music back in the day what would you what would have been your walk-up song boy back in the day trying to remember what i liked back in the day it probably would have been i mean this is this would have been the early 80s it probably would have been some Stones, probably some Rolling Stones. Okay, no, I was wondering maybe you had some Def Leppard or some Skid Row in there. Well, it could have been. It could have. It would have been. Maybe some, maybe Photograph. When I was in eighth grade, you know, that was the big thing was Photograph. You know? But uh, I guess this had been fifth and sixth grade. So, yeah, boy, that's a tough, that's a tough call. I mean, it's like late 70s, early 80s. Def Leppard wouldn't have been around yet, I don't think. Yeah, Def Leppard, Def Leppard was my band. Love Def Leppard. Yeah, but you're younger than me. You're a kid. Oh, I guess so. <laughs> All right, so you, you play some you play some baseball. Yeah. Um, you play some hockey. Tell me about your hockey. Um, when I was young, I was, I was a defenseman. Um, so I mean, it took me like three years to get my first goal. Uh, my dad was the coach. Uh, I loved it, but the thing that I didn't like about it is uh, all our stuff was outside. You know, you had to be older to get the indoor ice time back then. So I mean, every every game, you know, you go home and take your skates off, and your feet would just be just frozen. I mean, I remember, you know, being, you know, six years old, just crying. But, you know, it was my, it was my feet thought out. Um, you know, they, I, you know, you said Hockey Day Minnesota last week on TV, and they're talking about all the great memories of playing outside when you're a kid. I hated playing outside. A couple of games a year, we'd get inside or get in the, in the bubble or something. Those were the games that I, that I loved. But so by the time we got to fifth grade, I thought, you know what, basketball is inside. I'm going to, I'm switching to basketball. But I, I really regretted it because it's a hockey culture here. And I mean, it's, it's still my favorite sport. I mean, I'm, I'm a diehard gopher hockey fan. I can't get enough, even, even when they're struggling like a year like this. I, hockey's my thing. Love the wild. I know you, you were a goalie. Were you, uh -huh. Is that correct? Uh -huh. Yeah, I remember hearing that about you. All right, so, you're, uh, so you, you decide you're to pack the skates in and go full court to, to basketball. Mm -hmm. So what position were you at basketball? Small forward. Small forward. Yeah, I like, I like to uh, face the basket. I like to play out on the wing, shoot the three. Now I didn't, uh, if I went down into the paint, I'd get pushed around. I'd get knocked around. I wasn't a, I wasn't a hard worker on the boards or anything like that. I like to, I like to stand outside the arc and, and just try to find some open space and get some threes. And then you realize, at what point did you realize that basketball might not be, did you ever want to play for the Timberwolves? Or <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, when I was in sixth grade, I might've had a, you know, misguided fantasy or two about that, but it didn't take long to realize. I was, I was topping out at 6'1", and my vertical's topping out at probably 20 inches if I was, if I was lucky. Um, now it's probably about 5 inches. So, I mean, it, yeah, the writing was on the wall. The writing was on the wall pretty early. So I was, no, no, no illusions of grandeur there, or delusions of grandeur. And so, um, so you're, going, you're into high school. Uh, you, you stop playing basketball, uh, but you want to stay involved in sports. So how, did, how does that uh, affect your path? Well, I've always been a sports fanatic. I mean, some of my earliest memories of my childhood, uh, you know, sitting next to my dad watching Vikings games, you know, being five years old, watching them lose Super Bowls. I mean, I, I, can, I have memories watching, you know, Larry Zonka run through the Vikings, you know, in, 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 in the Super Bowl. I have memories of watching Brent McClanahan fumble on the one-yard line against the Raiders in the first quarter of a Super, the last Super Bowl they were in. I mean, the, the Ray Guy was the punter for the Raiders, had never had a punt blocked in his career. 
and Fred McNeil busts through and blocks a punt in the first quarter, and the Vikings are first and goal at the one. And we're all thinking, this is the year, monkey off the back. And I mean, I'm just like a seven-year-old kid, eight-year-old kid, and I've got these, these the, you know, monkey on the back syndrome. And sure enough, you know, they turn around and say, giving it to Chuck Foreman, they give it to Brent McClanahan, and he, and he fumbles. You know, he was, he was kind of their Rick Reed. No, <laughs> but he, 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 he uh, you can edit that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they hand it to Brent McClanahan, and he fumbles it on the one-yard line, and the rest is, is misery, as I like to say, not history. But, so, I mean, I've always been a diehard sports fan. Um, those are some vivid memories. And you were seven, eight years old, and you can remember that like well, that? I've always had kind of a steel trap for, for, for sports. Uh, I mean, I, 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 worked for the, I, went, I went to work for the Twins when I was 18 years old. As a matter of fact, I kind of considered myself, uh, in a way, they're, they're the good luck charm. Okay. Because the day I was hired in 1986, my first day is the day they let Ray Miller go and replaced him with Tom Kelly. So I would say, I was called that the beginning of the renaissance for the Twins. And the day that I, I, I worked for them, you know, through 1992, and I don't know if you remember the Twins' history in the early 90s, but, you know, they won the series in 91 and were poised to repeat in 92. I mean, they lost Jack Morris. They added John Smiley and, and, and didn't skip a beat. And it was June, and the Twins were in first place in the West, and Oakland was coming to town. And that afternoon, you know, we had just unpacked the squad after a road trip, because so I was working for Jimmy Wiesner, and we're down on the field. So you're a clubhouse. You're a yeah, clubhouse guy. Yeah. yeah, and I'm down on the field playing tater ball. I don't know if the, the clubby still did that in your day, but we're down there with the little Kirby Puckett giveaway bats, you know, you know, just, just hitting, hitting balls over the fence. And right in front of the 408 sign, I tore up my left knee on that warning track. I mean, like, permanent disability. I still got hardware. And that was, and that was the end of my... Uh, that, now, that day, by the way, the Twins had a lead over the A's, and the A's came to town... And that game, that, that day, uh, first game of four-game series, uh, I forget the guy's name, little left-handed hitting outfielder. I think his name was Fox. He hit a, a homer in the ninth off Rick Aguilera. Aggie was lights out. I mean, uh-huh. and, and this guy hits a homer up in the ninth, and they go on to sweep a four-game series, take first place, and go on to win the division. We never caught him. So, I mean, you, the day I broke you. my leg. <laughs> all because you hurt your knee. Yes, they yeah. couldn't do it without me. They couldn't do it without me. So how did you get that job? Because that job's got that's not easy to get. It was it was the best job ever. I loved it so much. Um, I, basically, I had a friend of mine had the job in in '86, and back then uh, the guys were all old. The guys were all 18, 19 years old because we had to work till one or two in the morning. Um, now they, I think the, the position of bat boy and ball boy is kind of more ceremonial. They let little kids run out and do it, and the clubbies stay behind the scenes. But back then we were the clubbies and the bat boys and the ball boys. So it, it was '86. It was September. And half the crew had to leave to go to college. I mean, that's how old they all were. And I, I was going to the U of M. So, you know, I was, uh, my buddy said, hey, you want to come down and fill in? And uh, I took an immediate shine to Jim Wiesner. I, I just loved the guy. I loved working for him. Uh, miss him. Miss him to this day. Rest in peace. Uh, but it was, boy, it was the best six and a half years. I mean, I was, I, I, was, I was there for two World Series. I poured champagne over Kirby Puckett's head, you know. I mean, it was, it was a dream come true. Played catch with Dan Glad in every inning, you know. So what was what would have been some of your, your top memories of it, of doing that? My my favorite story is uh, in uh, in St. Louis, the uh, we're in St. Louis for the World Series and had just lost games three, four, and five, and and you know everyone's just walking around like their dog just died, you know, and uh, I mean the, the '87 Twins were barely over 500. I mean they were outscored during the season. I mean they were the ultimate underdog. And they just rolled through a great Detroit team. Just smoked them. You know, just beat them, beat them, beat them up. And they get into St. They get into the World Series and win the first two at the Dome. And it's just like, boy, this runaway confidence for this young, overachieving team. Then we go to St. Louis and it's a, 
that stadium, I don't know if you remember Bush Stadium, mm-hmm. it is so big. Yeah. And it did, the Cardinals are so fast. And they were built for this turf, and it's, you know, it's, it's Ozzie Smith, and, and it's uh, Vince Coleman and Willie McGee, and they're hitting balls and gaps and running all day, and we lose all three games. So everyone's just forlorn, and just the clubhouse is just dim, and, and we're just, everyone's quiet. And we're going through the spread line, <laughs> and Herbeck sees a mixing bowl of chocolate pudding. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the spread line. It's for everybody. And he just walks up and he goes, well, this looks good. And he picks it up and takes it to his locker and eats the entire, I mean, a, like a giant, giant mixing bowl of chocolate pudding. Uh-huh. And people just sat around and watched him and just, they couldn't stop laughing. And, uh, and then uh, it was such a good group of guys. And we get on the plane to fly home and, uh, and Danny Gladden gets on the microphone. He does a little comedy routine before they go into, and, uh, you know, like as the plane start to lift off, he's doing the ha mule, ha, get up mule, get up mule. And just, just little things like that. You know, players behind the scenes, keeping people loose. And, and, that did, and also in, uh, in 91. So, so, so they were, uh, so they go, so it's, now it's three games or two. Oh, yeah. Now they go oh, back yeah. into Minnesota. Yes. Yes. And, and the, biggest, the biggest home run, the most impactful home run. I mean, yeah, Puckett went deep in, in, in 91 against Atlanta. Yes, Herbeck hit a grand slam in game six. But people forget about about Don Baylor in in Game Six because it was, but you know we're down five to two and John Tudor was on the mound and he was their ace. I mean, and he was just blanking us. It was five to two. I say us, like I had a lot to do with it. But well, you uh, did because you hurt your knee. And you, you <laughs> yeah. lost the season. That was a good luck charm. Yeah. But it was it was a five to two game in the, in in the, in Game Six. You know, three run deficit. We've lost three in a row. Confidence is in the tank and John Tudor's on the hill. Uh, I forget who gets on to start the inning, but Gaetti you know, doubles, doubles in a run. So now we got a guy on, on second base and it's a five to three game and Tudor, uh, leaves a change up, uh, like just over the inner, not, not, not the inner half, the middle, middle to outer third, just above the knees and Donnie Baylor, you know, he's always on top of the plate so he can reach out there and he just flips the wrist and that ball was halfway up to the suites in left field at the dome and it was five, five, just like that. And all of a sudden it was freight train. I mean, you know, they went on to win that game by like five runs and Herbeck hit the grand slam. And then Viola was lights out in Game Seven. I mean, but until Donnie Baylor got that got that change up above his knee that he was looking for, it was it was not good. It was not looking good. It's amazing how one swing in the back can change a whole momentum. Oh, it was it was amazing. It, it's excuse me, but I mean Herbeck hit the grand slam later in the game. I'm sure you've seen the highlight mm-hmm. of Ken Daly. I mean yeah. he went deep off yeah. the lefty, yeah. which yeah. was yeah. like oh my god. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean it was Donnie Baylor. I mean and another 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 may he rest in peace. Yeah. Sadly, but. And so, okay. and that was his first home run as a twin, by the way. They got him at the deadline, had no home runs, and that was the one home run he had as a twin. Oh, that, that. Yeah, that was it. I mean, it was a big one. He saved it for a good time. <laughs> yeah, he did. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so you're working six years. What, what are some of your kind of uh, outside of you blowing out your knee, some of your not so great memories there? Um, well, I mean, watching, watching things fall apart in 92 was, was tough. Um, and then and, and after my time there was done. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I, I really love the players. I, I love the guys. It was just the best group of guys. And the hardest thing that I had to deal with was, uh, you remember the Sports Illustrated story that they yep. tried to dig up dirt on Puckett. And I mean, Kirby Puckett is as good a human being as I've ever known in my life. I mean, I have seen days out by the loading dock, you know, where they gather for the mm-hmm. autographs. Mm-hmm. I've seen Kirby go out there, sign autographs for two hours, stop, yell, look around, say, is that everybody? Like, he doesn't want one kid to go yeah. home crying. Is that everybody? And then all of a sudden there'll be another wave of another hundred people come up. He'll sign all those for the next hour. And then he'll say, is that everybody? And he'll do that over and over and over again until finally everyone is taken care of. I mean, I've never seen anybody give of himself mm-hmm. like Kirby Puckett. Refused to take an off day at home because mm-hmm. some kid at the ballpark would be like, how come Kirby's not playing? Mm-hmm. I mean, the best human being I've ever known in my life. 
and uh, I mean, not everyone, not everyone has a perfect marriage. And then yeah. Sports Illustrated wanted to dig this dirt up on him. And I, this is, I had stopped working for the Twins. This was I, early in my career at KFAN, actually, that George Dorman contacts me. And, he's, and he's, he said, he's like, you know, we, this is what we've got on Kirby, blah, 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 blah. And this is the story we're going to run. And I'm, I'm like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I said, if, if, I said to him in so many words, I said, if, what, if your story here is that Kirby Puckett may have had a, a girlfriend or two, then you don't have a story. This is the major leagues. I mean, open your eyes. This is not a story. And he went and wrote that I said all the players had girlfriends. Uh -huh. And that broke my heart. Dan Gladden, you know, he took it personally. He thought I was attacking Kirby. He thought I was spilling, telling stories out of school and, or, or telling tales out of school. My, you know, I, I was devastated. I mean, I was trying to tell the guy, you know, if, 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 you're, if you're trying to make a cover story for Sports Illustrated that Kirby Puckett had a girlfriend or two, let it rest. I mean, this is the major leagues, you know. I mean, and, and, and sadly... You know, in, in, the, in the clubhouse, you've got, you know, kind of like the born-again Christian group. And, you know, the, then there are guys who, yeah. and it is what it is. It is. And it's, it's just not a story. It's, yeah. not, it's just, to me, the media's got a right to what happens on a field and what happens in a court of law. That's public record. Anything else, like that, some, some guy followed Alex Rodriguez around Toronto with yeah. his stripper girlfriend. Yeah. It's like, come on. It's just, that's just not a story. That's just nothing. Well, it is, but that's what sells papers. It's sad. It's sad. Yeah. Um, all right, so you, you go through, and then you, you, you move on. And, uh, at what point did you know, or you want to get on the radio and want to start to get involved more, in a, more into that aspect of it? Well, when my working days uh, ended for the Twins, I thought, you know... So why did your working days end? Well, I, I mean, I blew up my knee, and uh, I just I couldn't, I, couldn't, yeah. I couldn't do anything. I mean, I was, I was laid up. Good point. So, they, I mean, they, they, you know, they, they had to replace me, um, and I was... Do you know who they replaced you with? Uh, I don't. But I mean, I was 23 at the time, or 23, almost 24 maybe. And it's like, you know, it's a good job. It's like you get there and you try to hang on as long as you can because it's a good lifestyle. I mean, the equipment managers, the clubbies, they make good money and they're, you know, they get off seasons off and they're traveling and living a major league lifestyle. So it's a pretty good gig. So you try to hang on to it as long as you can. But once you get to a point where I got to, it was obvious I was going to have to do something else. So you never got tired of dealing with the, the professional athlete and dealing with that baggage of just because sometimes the clubs can get well, treated pretty bad you know but the, but the but the twins were always such a good group i mean mm -hmm. we were always so lucky i always I, I always looked at the 87 twins as like a a beer league softball team i mean they would those are guys who just played because they loved it you know guy and herbeck and randy bush randy bush is one of the the best people i've ever met in my life i mean just a, just a great guy in the clubhouse and uh i mean it's just i i never had a problem with them and i worked in the twins clubhouse now other teams you know uh, you know, the Oakland would roll in, and Conseco was just a horrible guy. I mean, he just was. I mean, he he would, uh, you know, if 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 like an umpire would want some autographed balls for his niece or something. Yeah. So you'd walk in there, you know, because somebody asked you to with the, with the baseballs in your hand, and he'd he'd see you from ten feet away, and he'd tell you tell you get the hell away from me. Uh -huh. Then you'd say these are for an umpire, and then you can't sign it quick enough. You know, he's one of those guys. So. Uh -huh. But you know, it's just I always like to judge people because I was a bad boy so I was the yeah, low man on yeah, the totem yeah, pole uh -huh. so I always thought a good a good measure of a man was how do you treat somebody who you who, who it doesn't benefit you to be good to him mm -hmm. like you know, I couldn't do anything for anybody but you know Kirby Puckett you know treated me as an equal in every way I mean I think I think of that as you know classy I mean it's like you don't have to be nice to the bad boy but but he is uh -huh. I mean I just I love that about him and uh, that's how the whole team was it was it was and I'll tell you one thing that was one of the most amazing things I saw in the years I was there, was uh, was was Gary Gaetti becoming a born again Christian? Uh -huh. I mean, it was it was one of the most remarkable 
changes in a man I've ever seen in, in my life. And it happened overnight. So what do you mean by that? But in 1988, he, uh, well, Gary Gaetti, first of all, I mean, I'm sure you, you, yeah. you he was a fierce, fiery competitor. Oh. I mean, just, I mean, I was scared to death of him for the yeah. first year I was there. I mean, he's just steely-eyed, just, you know, get on him. Like, he would run over his mother at home plate to yeah. win a game. He'd just, uh-huh. just kill her. Um, and in late 88, he blew out his knee. And while he was having his knee repaired, uh, he found Christ, like, when he was in the hospital. And he came back, and, I mean, I, he, he, was, he, he, had, he had gone over, undergone such a transformation, I hardly recognized him. I mean, I, I've never seen, and I'm not saying I didn't like the fierce, fiery uh, Gary Getty. I did. I mean, but he, he had gone from an intimidating, kind of frightening guy to... Is that me? I, it's not me. I'm not allowed to have a cell phone. Where's that noise going? Oh, Sounds like it's coming out of your computer. Do you have your computer rigged up to your iPhone or something? Yeah. All right. So, so, so Gary, so Gary Gaetti. So yeah, well, well, he's when he's when he was, you know, in the hospital having his surgery. I I don't know who brought him to Christ, but somebody did, and he he was just in, overnight just a different guy. And and I'm not gonna lie to you, I did it. it it created a different dynamic in the clubhouse. I mean, yeah, it did. Yeah, that's how did that. It, it didn't go over great. Yeah, you know, I mean, he, he he and Ken Herbeck were like brothers, uh-huh. uh, and they still love each other. They'll, they'll love each other to the day they die. They're both great guys. But um, you know, Herbie's one of those old school ballers. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and and uh, and and there can always. I I think it's unfortunate that sometimes there's a little division in clubhouse when it comes to. You know, some of you know the guys who go to chapel on Sunday mornings and the guys who don't. Sometimes there's a little division there, and that did kind of change the dynamic in there. And I kind of it was it was kind of the beginning of his, the end of his time with the Twins, to be honest. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. By '91, they had uh, Leas and Pagliarulo platooning uh-huh. at third for uh-huh. the next World Series run. Now, do you think did TK have an issue with it, or did they work like how? He didn't have a, he didn't no nobody had an issue with, with, with Gary's religious beliefs. They had an issue with the fact that he, his game lost its edge. Uh-huh. He, you know his game lost its edge. He he wasn't that guy who was going to run over his mother to get to get to home plate anymore. Hmm. But but he was I mean he 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 was a much nicer, easier going, much more more comfortable in his skin. I tell you than than you know than the guy he was before. You know. All right. So let's so you you're, you blow your knee. <laughs> you got to go now. You got to go behind the mic. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, tell me about uh, how that all came about. Well, uh, I was in the right place at the right time. Um, well, I went to Brown Institute, which was yeah. a broadcasting school. It's no longer in existence. Um, I went for a nine-month program, and when I got done, uh, when you get done, you make a little audition tape. You pretend, you know, you sit in a studio and pretend to be a DJ, and they send it out to stations. And um, the first hit I got the first, you know, nibble was from a country station in Wausau, Wisconsin. It wasn't really my style. I'm not a, I'm not a country music fan, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm definitely not a Wisconsin guy. I'm a diehard Minnesota guy. Uh, but the second uh, thing was a, just a part-time, behind-the-scenes, minimum wage, like seven twenty-five an hour at KFN. It was like sitting behind a board, a big control board, overnights and weekends, taking in network shows, you know. Back then, you know, on the weekend, they'd have ESPN radio or something. You just got to sit there and, you know, listen to the network feed. And when they go to commercial, you got to play the commercial. I mean, that's, that was the extent of it. And I was doing that for, I don't know, six months or so. And then they gave me a chance to do it for live programming. And, the, and I, so I was doing it for the morning show. Um, and, I, you know, in the world of radio, if you're in a room for a morning show, you're part of the morning crew. That's, that's how it is. You know, if you're, if, so, 
you know, I got the opportunity to chime in and wisecrack here and there and get, you know, cut my teeth a little bit. And um, I got to work on the morning show for a couple years. And uh, then uh, there was a guy uh, named Paul Allen who worked mm -hmm. at Canterbury Park. And they brought him in to start doing sports updates at the top and bottom of every hour. And I thought he and I had kind of a chemistry and we liked each other. And we, you know, we, we saw things in the same way, similar sense of humor. Uh, we both loved local sports teams and we weren't the kind of guys who were going to do a lot of bashing. So I went to our boss, Doug Westerman, and uh, asked him if you know, they could find a little slot for us on the weekend to see what we had. And they let us do that. And it all, it all happened because of the, the, the Jesse Ventura phenom in 98. He's running for governor. And none of us are taking it seriously. The bosses at KFAN aren't taking it seriously. We just think it's a novelty and it's great publicity for the station. And little, so anyway, once, once it gets to the middle of the summer, they've got to ask him to take a leave of absence because you've got to provide equal time mm -hmm. when it comes to political you know, uh, you know, candidates. And we're not going to give you know, a three-hour talk show to everybody running for governor. Yeah, yeah. So he's got to take a leave of absence. So uh, you know, they got, you know, to, to keep it in baseball vernacular, they got PA and Dubay warmed up in the bullpen. Yeah. They're like, well, you know what? Jesse's not going to win. We'll give the, it's the summer, you know, Jesse will be back in the fall for Vikings when, when ratings really matter. It's, it's summertime, you know, let's let these two clowns, you know, go in there and fill in for three months. And over the next three months, he gained momentum. I mean, he had that, you know, he'd go out to the state fair and get these crowds following us, following him. He got on this bus and drove around Minnesota, got people all revved up. And while he was doing that, you know, we were getting better ratings than he was. So, I mean, it was getting to the point where they said, you know, we don't want to give P.A. Dubay this time slot, but we might give them a show at night because, you know, they're, they're a little salty with their humor. You know, they might be better suited for a night show. And they're, they're doing well enough that we might, you know, keep them permanent. But then Jesse won the election. And we're just, everyone's just like, what the heck's going to happen now? Doug Westerman, our boss, he would have to go into Mick Anselmo, who ran the whole, com the whole company, the whole Clear Channel company in the Twin Cities, you know, every week. You know, Mick Anselmo would say, what do you got for me as a replacement for, for Jesse? And don't tell me it's P.A. and Dubay. And Doug Westerman would just shake his head and go, that's what I got. I got P.A. and Dubay. And, Doug, and Mick Anselmo every week would be like, tell me you got something other than P.A. and Dubay. And finally, he just relented. And uh, here, here's where we were lucky. Right place at the right time. Jesse's momentum and winning the governorship in 1998, this was the start of the Viking season where Randy Moss was a rookie. They went 15-1 and one and had Super Bowl written all over him. So, you, I mean, you can really ride the momentum of a local sports team if you're on sports radio. I mean, people couldn't get enough Vikings. People listened, you know. So, I just, so we, we, our ratings exploded in our first year. We, so why do you think your ratings exploded? Well, partly because, you know, the Vikings were so popular. I mean, the Viking people, I mean, Randy Moss and Randall Cunningham, and I mean, they're just, I mean, that 15 in one year, I mean, they looked like they couldn't lose. Everybody thought they were going to the Super Bowl, and of course they had the nightmare of losing to to Morton Anderson and the Atlanta Falcons in that overtime game, which is heartbreaking. But, I mean, when, this is a Vikings town. You've been in this town long enough to this. I mean, it's a die-hard Vikings town. But other, other people are talking about the Vikings, too. What's that? Other people. Well, yeah. Well, there was no other sports station in town at the time. I mean, now there's ESPN 1500, yeah. so there's some competition. Um, but there wasn't at the time. I mean, you, I mean, WCCO had some sports talk, which it still does. But KFAN was the one... You know, sports sports outlet, all you know, exclusive sports outlet, and people took a shine to us um, because well, number one, PA is PA is a, a great showman. He's uh, super talented. Uh, you know, great sense of humor, sharp, witty, uh, and he's he's got he's got style and flair. And I mean, he's just he's he's perfect for that job. And I think people liked me because I grew up in Minnesota, and they I think I had relatability. 
I grew up here. I love the local sports teams. I worked for the Twins. I bled purple for the Vikings. You know, you look at me now. I'm wearing a gopher hoodie. I got a gopher jacket right here. I, I mean, I think I think the local sports fan uh, kind of felt a kinship to me and and appreciated uh, you know my my local you know sports point of view, if it were. Okay. So and then you did uh, some stuff with uh, Mike Morris. Yeah. Oh, Vikings fan line. Yeah. That was a blast. Mike's a great guy. He's a great guy. We used to love making fun of him because he's a, he's a really in, really intelligent guy, and we used to just like you know bust his chops for being a big dummy because that's the role he plays. You know, he plays the big galoot and he plays it to a T, but he's a, actually a really intelligent guy. And uh, I got to do Viking fan line with him for years, and I loved it. I mean, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, my favorite my favorite moment ever though was you know it was it was a call-in show and it was after the Vikings game, and it's there's no secret that people drink when they watch football and. Uh, you know, we'd get we'd get an intoxicated caller from time to time, and this one guy called up, you know, and they 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 queue up the calls and put people on hold, and while this guy was on hold, he passed out. So we went to his call, and you just hear a guy snoring. It's like let's go to Mike in Apple Valley, and it's like, and we just like we kept him on for like thirty seconds, just listening to him snore. It was awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, they, he just couldn't he couldn't uh, not pass out waiting for his turn. When we come back, Jeff's going to talk about his battle with addiction. Stay with us. I'm Corey Kosky, and you're listening to How We Got Here from Linklate. I'm the former major leaguer that got this crazy idea of using sports stories to hopefully encourage youth and high school athletes and their parents as they are on their journey. Since retiring, I have coached over 85 youth sports teams over the last 12 years, and I have seen our world change. Our kids and their parents are more insecure than ever. We are comparing others' best presentation of themselves against how we view ourselves. We are comparing our real life to another's highlight reel. This is not fair. Real life is full of adversity. You will see in all our stories, we are all going to get knocked down. The successful people get back up and dust themselves off and continue to move forward. There is so much good that can come out of adversity if we allow it. As my mom said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. We are looking for sponsors to help us on our mission of connecting youth sports for good. If you'd like to sponsor our podcast, you can email me at cory.koski at linkleet.com. That's cory.koski at linkleet.com. With the right partners, we can connect youth sports for good and change this world. Welcome back. You're listening to How We Got Here from Linkleet. I'm Cory Koski. So Jeff Dubay has a great career. He has recognized all of the Twin Cities. It looks like he has the Twin City market right where he wants it. Until one fateful night, he spends the next 11 years in a battle. 2008, uh, K-Fan uh, Yeah. you guys. Yeah. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Well, I got arrested. I mean, I mean, this. Uh, I, I don't want to get too detailed about my divorce, but I mean, I... I was 39 years old, and I'd, I'd never experimented with any. I mean, I was as sober as a judge. I was a casual drinker, a beer or two here or there. I mean, uh, never even smoked weed. I mean, just, you know, squeaky clean. Uh, and then I went through a horrible divorce. I mean, and I know all divorces are horrible uh, in, in, in one way or another. But, I mean, mine was, without getting into too many details, it had some uniqueness to it. I mean, uh-huh. it was it could have it been on an episode of Jerry Springer. Uh-huh. I mean, it, it involved family. It was it, it was it was ugly, and uh, it uh, it led me down a bad path. In two thousand, 
it would have been like in the fall of 2007, I was at a party and I was going through this divorce. It was just tearing me up and somebody threw some crack cocaine on a table. I'd never seen it before. And I stand next to somebody and I, I said to him, what is that? And the guy goes, that's rock. And I said to him, oh, God, I thought it might be crack. I was like, that's how naive I was. Uh-huh. I'm like, I didn't know what that was. And, you know, everyone's like, hey, you can try it. You can try it. I'm going to try it. You can try it, blah, blah, blah. And my, my thought was, you know what? I'm, I've been going through hell. I mean, I, my life is, is, is never, has never been harder. I've never done anything wrong, ever. I mean, significantly wrong in my life. Take a 24-hour mental vacation. You know, just go ahead. Give yourself a break. It's Friday night. You'll be at work on Monday. And uh, the way I looked at it was, you know, I'm going to take a little, like a little dip in this pool and I'm going to climb right out when I'm done. Like it was going to be nothing. Uh, in reality, it's, it's like you, you just slip through a hole in the ice. And you, I mean, you could spend years, you know, trying to get up through that hole in the ice again. And it's a, it's a scramble for your life. I, I'll never forget waking up the next morning thinking to myself how screwed I am. Now, it's like, what am I going to do now that I know about this, now that I've tried this? I, I, mean, I, I mean, I was hooked instantly, just instantly. And I, I struggled with that for a couple of years. So what do you mean by hooked? So you took that, all it took was that, that one night. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, and it's, it's, it's one of these things where uh, if I'm ever in a position where someone is about to experiment and take their first hit, their first, I, I mean, I'll wrestle that person to the ground. I mean, I'll I just, it's just, you, you don't ever want to go through the looking glass. You know, you don't ever want to go, you, once, once you've stepped through, your whole world changes. And it, 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 for some... Maybe some people can dabble. Uh, most people can't. You know, I, I think it's for most people when it comes to highly addictive uh, substances like cocaine or heroin or methamphetamine. Uh, I never tried heroin, thank God. Um, but uh, with those other substances, I, I think one time is all it, is all it takes for most people. And and it's and and, and you're it's it's pretty instant. It's pretty instant getting hooked. Uh, it really is. So when you woke up the next morning, what did that what did that feel like? Uh, it's terrified. Cause I mean, I was a I was a radio talk show host. I was a public figure. It's like I can't do this. This is ridiculous. And I remember for the first month, for the first month, I you know I'm like, what are you doing? This is insane. You've got a career. You people know who you are, and you're running around smoking this garbage. What are you doing? And um, I remember uh, the, the the point where it really got out of hand for me was uh, when I asked someone for some help, um, and that person turned me down it was you know my, my estranged wife at the time was coming to pick up some belongings at the house and i thought to myself you know what this is insane you've been doing this for a month you still have everything in the world to lose stop this right now you know nut up your courage and say to tell while well, she's here just tell her you need some help so she came downstairs with a box full of things was about to go out to the garage and i said just with tears in my eyes i've been smoking crack cocaine for the last month you've got to help me i can't do i can't do this and she looked at me and said I can't help you and walked out and that's when I just I hit it hard and I just I was I was out of control for a couple of years and uh, I wound up switching to, to meth but it's just it's the same thing it's 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 basically the same thing it's just it's probably more damaging it's probably less healthy it's so I mean and I had periods of sobriety over you know I'm 51 right now and this started when I was 39 I've had some I've had some periods of sobriety um, never as long as the 14 months that I have right now but uh, I had some windows, but it's, I, I, I tell you what, I, I, I can see why addiction is a death sentence for most. I mean, I, I can see why the recovery numbers are as small as they are. I mean, like, if people go to 
you know, 28 day treatment, 60 day treatment, 90 day treatment. And it's, it's probably, you know, a single digit, you know, percentage that, that go on to success. And I can, I have no problem seeing why the number is that small. So I'm still stuck. I just, it just, it blows me away of that, that all it took was that one time, one time, one time. And it's like, you're going through, cause everybody goes through really difficult times and they're like, you know what? It can't be any worse than it is that I'm going through right now. Mm -hmm. And you want that little moment of peace. You're like, you know what, maybe if I do that, it will get me out of, into this different world and I don't have to deal with the pain mm -hmm. I'm dealing with right now. Mm -hmm. And then all it took was that one, one time. time. Yeah. And then you woke up and it, there's like, you had the urge, or you just like, I Instantly. have to have it? Instantly. And, and, you know, there were days where I would wake up and be like, okay, I'm going to be fine today. I mean, I was working, you know, my show was nine to noon. Okay. I'd wake up in the morning with resolve saying, you know, I'm not going to do this today. I'm going to be fine. This is this is nonsense, and then I do the show, um, and I would always I I people said were you ever high at work? I was like no, I was never high at work. Uh, number one, I was too responsible. I mean, I, I, and number two, people would know. Yeah. I, but the the problem is, I'm kind of high strung. Yeah, I talk fast, and so people would think, well, maybe he is, and maybe he's not. But no, I never was. Um, the other thing with crack cocaine is you're high for 20, 30 minutes, and then you then you crash and you crash hard unless you continue to smoke it. But anyway, I'd get to the end of the day, and it would be noon. And I'd go home and I'd, you know, be sitting there by myself. It's, you know, it's like, it's not six o'clock at night. It's 12, it's 1230 in the afternoon. And my workday is done. At the time I, you know, had money because you know, it's a, the job was a good job. I had money. I had time on my hands. And by, uh, you know, it, it's, I would say sometime in the afternoon, this just a tiny little thought, just a, you know, tiny little seed of a thought, it, you know, pops into your mind and what would happen with me is my entire demeanor would change. I mean, my heart would start racing. I'd get sweaty. I'd start, I mean, you start jonesing. And I mean, it's like five minutes later, you're pacing around, you're nervous, you're jittery, and you're on the phone calling somebody. And it's just, to me, the whole key, at the time, I thought the whole key to, to kicking this thing is finding a way to reverse that. I mean, if I, you know, once, once, once I get the thought in my head and all of a sudden I start racing and my thoughts race and my heart races and I got to find a way to turn the, turn this around. But I found, I found, you know, over two years of hell that you can't, or I couldn't, you know, once that starts, it's, it's just, it's irreversible, at least for me. I mean, it's just, once, once the thought enters your head that you're going to do this, it's, it's, it's too late. And so you talked about the two years of hell, like what, what, what did that look like? At what point do you hit where, cause we're, uh, you know, Friday you're graduating uh, mm -hmm. from, from Teen Challenge. Yep. So at what point does Teen Challenge come into the picture and how does that all? Well, I mean, I'd been using for close to a year when I went to my boss and said, hey, I've got this problem and I've got to go to treatment and take care of this. And so where'd you go there? Uh, I went to a place called New Beginnings in Waverly. And uh, my boss at the time, he had, I mean, I'd been doing using for like a year and he said he, he had no idea. He was stunned, he said at the time. Um, so anyway, I go and I, I, you know, I take, take you know, four weeks off of work and I go to a 28-day treatment. And uh, well, I'll do respect to the people in, in Waverly. It's, it's a great facility. It's a great place. It's, I'm sure a lot of people have gone there and gotten well. But I don't know how anybody can recover uh, going to a 28-day. I mean, I knew nothing about recovery. And I knew nothing about, about treatment. I, I thought treatment, in my mind, I thought I was going to go someplace really clinical. I thought I was, I was expecting like a medical setting. Like we were going to get to the root causes of this or that. But most treatments are, are faith-based. Because most treatment centers are 12-step based. And the, you know, the 12 steps you know, it's about handing it over to God. I mean, they can say higher power and they can use whatever language they want. But I mean, 
at some point you're, you're putting it into God's hands or you're not going to get anywhere. And obviously here at Teen Challenge, everything is Christ-centered. And uh, I, I, I fought that for years. I mean, I've always believed in God, but I've always believed in self-sufficiency. I've always believed in self-will. And, 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 you know, all this powerlessness and you got to admit powerlessness and like, well, that sounds like quitting. That sounds like giving up to me. I'm not, I'm not that kind of person. I'm going to, I'm not powerless. I can, I can say no. And I tried to white knuckle it and use willpower. I mean, so I went to, I went to Waverly to New Beginnings and it was 12 step based and it was, you know, God, this, God, that. And I just was so resistant towards it. And I did my 28 days and I couldn't wait to get out and get high. And basically within a month or so, I got pulled over with a half a gram of crack cocaine. That's about, that's smaller than a dime probably. It's just a tiny little, looks like a breadcrumb. And uh, I got a fifth degree possession and uh, you know that was the start of the nightmare. That's, that's when KFN let me go and um, you know, it's, I, I wound up you know, all over the news. I mean, it was, the week was a nightmare. I mean, I couldn't get, I couldn't, I was the lead story on the six o'clock and 10 o'clock news for like three days and I'm just thinking, could somebody out there kidnap somebody or take a hostage or something? Do something to get me off the front page. Just something. But so how, how, how do you, like, what do you feel like through that? Just, I mean, I couldn't leave the house. I mean, I was so, the problem, one of the problems I think with addiction in this country is, is this, you get stigmatized. And, and everything that we do as a society, and I'm not saying, I'm not going to be all bleeding heart here and say, oh, give addicts a break. But, but when you, when you take, somebody who's struggling with addiction and you criminalize them uh like for me for instance it made me feel like such uh, so much shame yeah i mean i'm all over the news it's like i didn't even want to show my face in public and that isolation leads to more use which leads to more isolation which leads to more use and it's just a death spiral and i mean i just i i the the, the criminalization of it the, the i mean i i became a felon lost my job you know, became an outcast of society because I was struggling with an addiction. I mean, I think the day will come when, you know, you know like, they'll look back and say, you know, maybe it'll be 100 years from now or 50 years from now, but they'll look back and say, boy, you guys used to lock up your addicts? That's barbaric. And I yeah. think that day will come. I mean, it's like, you know, we used to have debtor's prison. We used yeah. to lock people up for being in debt, and now that looks barbaric. I think someday people are going to say, boy, you locked up people who were sick. You took people who were sick and, and, and put them in jails and prisons. And I... I, I just, and I'm not, again, I'm not sitting here saying that, that, that addicts should be given, you know, a free pass or a get out of jail free card, but I, it's, I, I mean, I'm glad to see that the laws are changing. Um, like a fifth degree possession uh, when I was having my problems, that, that was a felony. So I've got, I've got two felonies. Um, if you put them on a, not to minimize what I did wrong, because I, 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 you know, I, I made mistakes, but if you took my two arrests, I put them on a scale together. They don't come to a full half gram, and I've got two felonies for that. Now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, thankfully they've they've done a lot to change those laws. Now I think you have to have seven grams with like the intent intent of selling and being mm-hmm. a dealer to have a felony. So felonies really, I mean, they really hinder a guy's life. I mean, they, it's a, it's a tough thing to come back from. So so you bounce back from that, and then you go you do start doing podcasting. Well, actually, before that, even I was uh, I got a second chance in radio. I mean, I, I had some sobriety. And kind of got myself together, and an opportunity came up at 1500 ESPN. And uh, I got to work there for a year, and I really loved it. I worked with Judd Zolgad. If you know Judd, he's a great guy. Uh, just a, a joy to work with. It's a, it's a, it's a family-owned operation over there. It's a, I really enjoyed my year there. Um, uh, but they, you know, they had uh, some, some budget issues, and they let me go. 
uh, I remember the day, it was January 14th, um, they, they let me and like four TV guys go all on the same day to make budgets. It was the end of the year. Uh, it was like Rusty Gatenby and Brad Sat and Patrick Hammer and me, we all got let go the same day. And, uh, you know, they, they, you know they, they made a nice little, uh, you know, they were just letting Jeff go for, for budget reasons and there wasn't performance and... Uh, but it was still, it's, it just, it's still, I took it hard, and uh, I wound up sp you know, spinning out of control as a result of that. And I why, did, why did you take it hard? Well, I'd never been, I mean, when I, when I was at KFAM, we were so we were so successful. The show was good, it was popular, um, you know, and I, it's, it, it was really affirming, you know. I'd go, I'd go out to dinner at Champs, you know, or something, like at Ridgedale. I lived in the Hopkins, Minnetonka area. I'd go to Ridgedale, Champs, and people come up to me, hey, you're Jeff DuBay. It was very, it was very affirming. It was, I'm not going to lie to you, it was a kind of a nice ego stroke you know, to be, got kind of that 10-year run of the P.A. and DuBay show. And then to, to, to have a crash down with addiction, with arrest, with, you know, the public shame. I mean, I just, uh, I, 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 I guess I took too much of my identity from, from my previous career, from my show, and I just started feeling terrible about myself. And then... And then to have the second chance uh, with 1500 ESPN and, and to have it, you know, for that, that year, the ratings were never what we wanted them to be. It just never seemed to catch on. And then to be let go after one year, I felt like such a failure. I thought, well, that's, there it is. I mean, like when I got that job at 1500, I thought, here we go. You know, it's gonna, it's just, here we, this is going to be the start of something big. This is going to be great. I'm going to be here for years. Finally, I got things straightened out. I'm on the right track. And then for to, to, to melt down the way it did and not work out, and for me to lose the job, I just I was devastated, and I just thought, well, that's it, it's over for me now. And at the time, I was completely estranged from my family. I had no support system. I was living alone in a one-bedroom apartment in South Minneapolis, um, and my entire social structure basically was that job. Everything that I had was that job. I mean, I was I was alone. I had no family. I had few friends. So when I lost that job. You know, I just, I went to, a, I went back to my apartment, I sat there and I just ruminated and I was depressed and I was having a terrible time. And, and had I, had I, had I stopped and realized that this isn't the end, I wouldn't have thrown away some opportunities that I still could have had. But it, it just, it felt like the end and I just, I unraveled. Okay. And so, and so what, what now, what next? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I was contacted by Sean Bernard about working on the Tom Bernard Podcast Network. Sean is Tom's nephew who set up that that um, that whole podcast network, and it's it's very successful. But I wasn't sober, and it was just I, I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't sober, and I just couldn't handle it. Um, I wound up throwing away that opportunity, and I've I've had you know some personal podcasts that I've done with with friends, and and I worked with Sean Bernard uh, uh, also with the with the Alive and Social Network. He's a great guy. He knows exactly. But if I tell you what, if you ever need any help with your podcast or marketing your podcast, the guy is a digital marketing genius. He knows how to distribute and market podcasts like nobody I've ever known. Um, uh, so I would contact him. He's a, he's a great guy. But I, yeah, I was, again, in and out of sobriety, you know, just little windows here, windows there, but for the most part, just still spiraling. And then in 2015, I got pulled over. I mean, I had... Uh, I had uh, stuff in the car that shouldn't have been there. Why did you get pulled over? I got pulled over for speeding. Um, <laughs> I was in Cottage Grove, and this little tiny dog ran out, and I had to lock up the brakes so hard to not hit this little dog. And this woman came out and picked up her dog, and uh, and I'm just like, my heart's pounding, I'm sweating, and I, I pull away, you know. But she's like, oh, thank you, thank you, and I'm pulling away, and I'm not paying any attention to my speed, and I'm like right in front of a school. Like a block later, I get I get pulled over for speeding. And I was on my way to do my podcast, as a matter of fact. And I had some old 
some old paraphernalia in a computer bag that I carried with me. And, you know, the police pulled me over and looked in the car and found it. And I got... Why did you look in the car? Um, I had an unpaid ticket that I didn't know about. I had an unpaid ticket from, like, two years ago that I did, you know, like, somebody put on my windshield. And I so, never... So I, I had, like... I, I don't know if I had a warrant, but I had, like, a suspended license that I never even knew. I, 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 didn't, I didn't have any idea uh, that I'd gotten this ticket that led to a suspended license. So they were able to search my car, and I, I wound up getting a, getting a, a second possession charge. So that's my second felony. And that was in 2015. At that point, I mean, at that point, I, I can't help but think that, boy, people just must look at me like I am just a piece of garbage. I mean, people must look at me like, what, this, this guy, what a loser. I mean, he's just a two-time loser now. He just can't get it right. He can't keep it straight. And in reality, people are, people are pretty supportive. But when you're, when you're in the fog of addiction and you're having, you know, your shame made as public as mine was, uh, you know, the, the enemy gets in your head and just tells you lies that, you know, boy, you, you, these people are just going to, no one's going to trust you, no one's going to love you, no one's going to give you a chance. And it just, it just sends you deeper and deeper into that hole. Like I was talking about earlier, when you, when you, when you criminalize, you know, addiction and, uh, you, you know, you, you stigmatize somebody. They, like, like I've, I, I have friends who have dabbled and, and maybe struggling a little bit with addiction, but have never been arrested. So people around them do not know that they have a problem. That's why they're, they're afraid to go to treatment because then they'll be stigmatized. If, as soon as it, like if somebody seeks help, then you know, in their head they're like, well, then everybody around me is going to know that I'm doing this, and I'd rather just keep it a secret and keep struggling. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the way you think. Fear. Yeah, it is. It is fear, and you know, fears. We're not given a spirit of fear. Uh, you know, we're given a spirit of love, but, but fear. You know. Isn't it amazing how fear this plays havoc? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I hear you talking about how, you know, this public shame, but the reality is so people report in the news and we take it as a shaming. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it's just how we receive that. Right. Right. And it's, I mean, obviously I've spent, I've just spent 13 months here at Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge. In a, in a, in a, so how did you get here? Like, what's the story for you to get well, to this spot here? Well, uh, and back why did you get here? Back in 2017, I was... I was living in what could only be referred to as a trap house. Uh, I don't know if you know what a trap house is, but it's just a, it's just a house with a lot of drug traffic coming okay. and going. And I was, it's just a horrible So place. how'd you get there? I mean, I, I had spiraled completely out of control. I had no contact with my family anymore because, you know, my, my divorce was messy. And it's, uh, again, it's my, uh, well, I don't want to get too detailed yeah, about yeah, it. But, but I mean, I had to kind of separate myself from yeah, my family. It was yeah. pretty uncomfortable. Um, you know, I was a two-time felon. I was having trouble getting or holding jobs. I was using. So I wound up just kind of staying at this trap house. And, you know, there's a lot of use going on. There's, there's people coming and going, people getting high. And uh, basically, you know, I was, I was seeing this girl and, and, and this other woman was, you know, high and jealous and angry. And these two women were going to attack each other. And I stepped in the middle. And whenever that happens, I mean, I, I wound up getting a third degree assault. And I, I'll tell people this right now. When I do something wrong, I'm accountable. Uh -huh. And I've made a bunch of mistakes in my life. Uh -huh. uh, I am not guilty of this, this, this third degree assault. I, I, I mean, I, the, the, the police, you know, they show up. And if there's a man present and something has happened, mm -hmm. you, you go, you go. And uh, I, was, I, I had a witness. I was ready to defend myself. And the, 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 the way that the courts, they don't even care about, they don't even care about finding out the truth. They just want convictions. They just want numbers. They, they, came to, they came to me and my public defender and said, 
Yeah, the charge is third degree assault, which I was going to say, of course I'm not guilty. I'm going to fight this. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's like a 60, it's like you, you typically get like a six month sentence if you're, if you're guilty and you do like four months. I'm like, I'm going to fight this. And they said, okay, well, if you're going to plead not guilty, uh, we're going to change it to a first degree assault, which means we can put you in front of a jury, uh, you know, and you're the guy and the woman's in the defense stand. So, I mean, you, you gotta, you're going to have to convince this jury that you're not an animal. And if you don't, you're going to go to prison for seven years. So it's like, well, Okay, well, of course I'm going to plead guilty to the third degree. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, it's like if I plead not guilty, I'm going to sit in front of a jury with a woman on the stand trying to convince people that I'm not a monster or I'm going to go to prison for seven. I mean, it's just like, you, do you do this all the time? I said to the guy, do you blackmail people into guilty pleas like this all the time? They just don't, they don't bat an eye. They, could, they couldn't care less. So here I am pleading guilty to a third degree assault, uh, of which I'm completely innocent. And while I'm in jail in Washington County going through this legal process, um, somebody comes in, and I, I believe this is God at work. Somebody comes in who's a client. He's a client of Teen Challenge. He's been there. This is, this is December of, of 2017. He's been there for 10, 11 months, and he's approaching his graduation. Um, but he's got a sentencing date coming up. So he has to, he's got to come in uh, for a sentencing, and he's, you know, he's expecting to get probation. He's, he's done the program. Uh, he's worked the program well. He's been here. He's doing all the right things. And usually you get breaks in the court of law from, from Teen Challenge. This place has a lot of respect in the court of law. But on his court date, the judge looked at his paperwork and said, there's a couple things here that I want to more closely examine. We're going to set a court date 10 days out. So they, so they said, you're going to have to wait in jail for 10 days. So the guy gets put in the pod that I'm in. Um, and the whole time he's there, he's just exuding how much he loves. I mean, it's just it's coming out as poor as how much he loves Teen Challenge. I mean, and I've had the opportunity to come here before. I'd been struggling with addiction for years. But, I mean, it's, I'm thinking, boy, 13 months, and it's Christ-centered. It just seems really intense and really long. I mean, I found a million reasons never to come here. But So now i got this guy in my face every day saying, you got to go there. It's the best place. You've, you've, never, you've never experienced anything like it. Everybody there loves you, and they want you to succeed. And, uh, you know, you, it's, it's, he's just telling me all these amazing things about it. Uh, and I, you know, and it's just he's like bombarding me for like a week, and uh, and he's he's making some really good points. It's a really good good case for it. And then he goes to his sentencing, and he gets seventy two months. And I mean, he walks back to the to the pod, and he's got just this look on his face, like he wants to, you know, just jump off a bridge. And uh, when I saw that, I told him, I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to Teen Challenge and and, and finish what you started. And I, I promise you, I'm gonna finish it. And he looked at me and he said, If you do that, that might make this worth it. So that's that's I mean I. I mean, I didn't belong in jail that, that month. I, I had no business being there. I had done nothing wrong in, in my eyes, and I, I stand by that to this day. But had I not been there, my path wouldn't have crossed with this guy's path, and I wouldn't have spent the last 13 months where I am, and I wouldn't be who I am today. And it's, it's, it all happens for a reason, and I believe that now. I mean, I used to look at my life as... Like all these great adventures I had, like working for the twins and having a radio show, and but each each one of these things got interrupted by a calamity, like me, you know, busting up my knee, ending my run with the twins, or or me, you know, having this horrible divorce leading to addiction, you know, ending my career or or at least short circuiting my career. But now I I look at it more as as these were these were these were events, these tragedies were ways that that God just delivered me to to what was next and what was supposed to be next for me. And, uh, I mean, I'm coming out of here with, you know, three felonies on my record. And, you know, I, I, until a couple months ago, I had no idea what my future was going to look like. And, you know, now I've got, I've got some, some, some really clear direction and a, a clear mind. And I, I don't know if you know who William Moyers is, but he's a gentleman. He's the VP over at Hazelden. Mm -hmm. He's kind of taken me under his wing as in, a, in a mentorship role. And he's 
he's, he's steering me in the right direction. He's, he's going to you know, get me in the, in the public speaking circuit and doing, doing some things, getting out and telling my story. And uh, I'm really grateful to him for all he's doing. I'm really grateful to this place for all they've done. So what makes Teen Challenge different? Because for those of you, for those of the people who are listening to this podcast who don't quite understand, because addiction is real. Yeah. Addiction doesn't discriminate. Addiction doesn't care what color your skin is. Addiction doesn't care what, how much money you have. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's there and it's oh, yeah. real. Yeah. So what makes, what made Teen Challenge different for you? Um, well, I mean, from a, just a pragmatic standpoint, the time, I mean... Uh, I'm a big believer in the in the in neurochemistry and, and how the brain functions and in neuropathways and how habits are formed and habits are broken and habits are reformed. Um, and if you're you know doing dope the way I was for years, you, you, I mean you need to let that thing heal. And it it does have tremendous healing powers. Uh, and it does take a year or two for your brain to unscramble itself. I mean, God bless you know 28 day programs or 60 day programs or 90 day programs, but none of them have ever done a thing for me, partially my fault. I mean, I might not have been ready, but I, it's just not enough time. And I, th- I think it's true for most people that that's not enough time. It's, it, it might be for some, so I don't want to overgeneralize, because, you know, people go to 28-day programs and come out, and they're healthy, and they don't use again. But for me personally, I needed more time. I needed more time than that. So um, the, the 13-month angle here was a big deal. Um, the way you're cared for here is a big deal. I mean, when your life is a mess, to have the opportunity to go somewhere for 13 months, never be handed a bill, you know, you never, you never at any point you're, you're having to, you know, pay, a, pay your rent or your food or, I mean, just, you're able to put aside every distraction, every calamity, every noise and just focus on getting well for 13 months. I mean, you know, what a blessing that is. I, you know, I didn't have to, like I said, it's not like there's a bill every month I got to pay. I, I, I haven't given this place a dime. I mean, you know, nobody does. I mean, it's just, it's, they, they, they do a great job of just allowing you to just focus on nothing but getting better for, for 13 months. I mean, it's, when else in your life, how many times in your life can you just say, I'm just taking a year and I'm not going to worry about a thing other than, other than getting better. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great place. And, and then obviously it's, it's Christ-centered. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the main thing about this place is it's, is it's Christ-centered. So how did you, um, you said earlier on that that was kind of something where you had a little bit of pushback to it. And is there a point during your stay here where you just felt the warmth of Christ coming through you and just where this had just changed? Well, yeah, and it's, it's, it's like when I've gone to treatments in the past, I've almost equated it to like being in jail because it's, you're institutionalized. Either way, you're living under somebody else's roof and somebody else's rules. And I thought, boy, like I, I don't want to go be institutionalized for 13 months. That feels like jail to me. But I've never once, I've never once felt like that here. I mean, you're just you're so cared for. I mean, Pastor Terry Francis and, and Pastor Rich Sherber, the two guys who, who run this place. I mean, I'm a cynic by nature. I'm a cynic by nature. And uh, you know, when I first met these guys, I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. There's got to be there's got to be some kind of angle here. This one guy, he's always trying to ask people for money, and it's like, there's got to, it's like, they're the two most pure-hearted, kindest, I mean, they've got such a heart for this place, and such a heart for the people that come through here. Uh, they're two of the best men I've ever met in my life, and I mean, I, I used to love to sit around and say, boy, this place sure loves hitting people up for money, this place sure loves, but like I just said, I mean, I've been here for 13 months, I've never seen a bill. I mean, they got, so you got to pay, you got to keep the lights on and, and, and put food on the table, so I mean, yeah. You know, they they got to go out and fundraise. I mean, I, I spent months thinking, you know, I'm going to find a way to, to, 
to discredit this place in my mind. I'm gonna, I'm gonna find a way to not buy in. I'm gonna, I'm gonna find a reason to be a cynic, you know? And, and I, I kind of latched on to, well, boy, they're always asking people for money. It just seems like a typical kind of, you know, ministry always having their hand up. This place is, they're, the motives of this place are so pure. And the people who run it uh, have such a heart for it. Uh, they're, they're, there's, they're bulletproof in my mind. I mean, Pastor Rich Sherber and Pastor Terry Francis, this, these people, this organization, uh, absolutely beyond reproach when it comes to character, morality, love. Uh, it's, it, there's just not a place like this that I've ever experienced in my life. So, uh, so at what point in, in your um, uh, in your stay that you, know, you talked about being a cynic? What point in, in your stay did that kind of go away? Like, what point did you really feel Christ take a take a hold of your heart and, and and through this? I think it was a slow process for me. I don't think it was. I didn't. I've never had. You know, that, 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 that moment where, you know, you drop to your knees and you see the bright light and then you come to Jesus. For me, it's been, it's been a slow process. I'm somebody who's always, I, I intellectualize things. Uh, and it's, it's, it was never hard for me to believe in God. It was never hard for me to believe in Christ. It was, it was hard for me to, to have an emotional connection, you know? Like, uh, like you, were in, you were in chapel the other day. Um, you know, the, the worship music comes on. I mean, we, there are some people who become very demonstrative, very emotional. Um, that's, that's always been the trick for me, is I can believe in God more than I, can, more than I trust God. You know, I'm, I'm very willful. Um, I always figure I've got the better answer. I always figure I've got the better plan. Um, but I, I think when I knew, people, it's, it's funny, people around, around me seem to see change before I do, and I think that's probably true for most people. Um, uh, but I think for me the change started when I stopped being so willful, I mean, I still, I still have to work on letting go. But I mean, I, 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 when I, when I was starting this program, I had pictures in my mind, images of what I thought it would be like when I got to the end, and how I would be, and what my life would be like. And then I got to the end, it didn't even resemble that. And it's like, you know, you just, you got to stop and just realize that you're not in charge. You know, God is sovereign, and there's a, there's a plan that's better than mine. As a matter of fact, the best, the best way I ever heard it, uh, heard it phrased was this, just this fall, I was at a Gopher football game and Tony Dungy was, was being honored at halftime. And, uh, and he talked about how, you know, he was a defensive back for the Pittsburgh Steelers in the 70s. And, you know, he was a college quarterback who got moved to defensive back. It was never his natural position. He was always okay, but not great. But he thought his career was going to be as an NFL football player. And he was determined that it would be. And then he gets released and it's, it's you know, he thinks, oh, it's over. There goes my plans. But the Steelers released him so they could make him a coach. And now he becomes a Hall of Fame coach. And it's not something he ever even thought about. And he was, you know, his point being that God's got a plan better than any plan any of us could ever have. So anything that I thought I might do when I got out of here uh, or, or what, what opportunities might be for me or what my plan might have been, I, I can't even remember. I mean, I, they're just, they're so far gone. I've just, I've, I've just learned to... To, to let go and, and, and follow, follow you know, you know what, what I think God's will is for me. And, uh, and now I'm being blessed with opportunities that I couldn't have dreamt of a year ago. I want to close the show off by re-emphasizing a point. One time is all it took for him to get addicted. One time. That blew me away. We think our life is bad. We're going through all this stuff but we don't know how bad it can get under addiction. Hey, thanks for listening to the show today. If you like this show or any other of our shows, make sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. If you want to read stories written by our guests, you can do that on www.linkly.com 
Don't forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter so you don't miss any of these stories. Make sure to check out our social pages. We have them all. Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have any suggestions for our show, please write us on Facebook. I'm Corey Kosky, and you've been listening to How I Got Here from Linkly. Special thanks to Wade Beavers and our friends at the restaurant Agriculture.